0: Jonathan Dore with you once again. Welcome aboard, friends, to the Supply Side Podcast. Great privilege to have the pleasure of your company for a little while. Hope it can really bring you some value today. Who knows when you'll be listening to this, hopefully, uh, around the time it comes out, because what a time in economic history it is, in the, in the history of political economy. Interesting and uh Extraordinary things are happening. Extraordinary, yes, but unprecedented, no. Because as you're going to learn from today's fantastic guest, there is nothing new under the sun. I know many of you already know that. A lot of what we're seeing at the moment in global debt markets, in the bond markets, equity markets, in real estate, in many ways has happened before. Today, I'm really excited to be bringing you a great guest. We've got Mr. Dan Oliver. He's uh, from Mermican Capital. In new York he's also the author of a fantastic new book that you must get your hands on when it comes out and you'll understand uh, about that at the start of the interview because it's not quite released but it's close I had the pleasure yesterday of reading the prologue, and I really want to encourage you to get your hands on this book. Dan, his prose is excellent. His command of history and political economy is uh, is really fantastic. So I want you to go to goldentears.org. I'll give you a reminder at the end of this discussion. But check out goldentears.org. You can go and read the prologue at the bottom of that page, and you'll see what I'm talking about. He takes us through the extraordinary situation in pre-revolutionary people like uh, Louis XIV, John Law, and the Mississippi Company, and uh, you know, there is nothing new under the sun. A lot of what uh, Dan's going to discuss with us from history is very much likely to be playing out again soon in a stock market near you. So um, please make sure you lock in, listen to this, this is quality. If you want to check it out on YouTube, you should be able to find it uh, under the supply side, we've got a great video with Dan as well. So you can listen to us here on the podcast or find us on the video version as well. So that's it for now. Please make sure you've subscribed. If you like what you hear today, please send it to other interested and like-minded people. But for now, let's do this, everybody. Let's sit back, relax, and enjoy this fantastic interview with Mr. Dan Oliver. So, Mr. Dan Oliver, joining us from Connecticut, welcome aboard to the Supply Side Podcast and thanks for making time for us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So, the biggest question on everybody's lips is when is this book of yours actually gonna get finished?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny, I, I run an a, a investment fund in the, in the junior gold mining space, and anyone who knows that space knows that it's an incredibly volatile thing, and, and, uh, and especially at the time from 2013 to, to 16, it was it was quite rocky. Uh, the GXJ was down, I think, 87%. I was down similarly. And, and my wife was was insisting I, I drop it and do something else. And I, I told her that I, I wanted to memorialize this this activity. So I was going to take all my letters I'd written and, and, and put them in a book. It would take me three months, and and then I'd move on to something else. So I knew it. The second I finished it, I had to shut the fund down and get a job. And I didn't want to do that. So. I made the book, it was like Penelope, you know, I, I made it last a very, very, very long time and, and, and I made it last so long, the mark came back to 16 and has and, and been quite successful since then. Uh, and, and also writing a book, you know, the idea of doing it in three or four months sounded like a great idea, but the, the deeper I got into it, the more I went back to my letters and reread them and, and said, okay, if I'm going to write a book, I've got to get the sourcing right. Uh, I can't just, you know, the letters are going to be a little more loosey-goosey, but when you're writing a book, you want to have the, the the proper references and do it academically. And so it led me back into the wormhole of re re-reading all of the theoretical books like the, the, the Mises and the Hayek's and that kind of thing, but, but also historical narratives, because what 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 grabbed me originally about the gold thesis, the credible thesis, wasn't the theory. The the theory is interesting and important and and useful, but it was more reading about history and reading about people living through these different episodes and the the interest that just, it's just interesting, but then on top of that, recognizing we were in a similar situation and understanding that if I could understand what had happened in the past, I'd have a much better chance of predicting what was going to happen uh, in the future. So it, it was both an academic interest, but, but also a practical one. Uh, and, and so it's been a real labor of love. And, and unfortunately, I, I was on the verge of finishing the damn thing. <laughs> and, the, and then the virus happened and and we moved and, and business got busy. And so, I, so it, it has been almost done now for three years. But, I, but hopefully I, I will finish it soon.
0: I love that almost almost done for three years. So we're getting close listening to you. It's interesting. <laughs> I know Churchill's got the famous saying that the further you look back in history, the easier it is to see into the future. And uh, I want to ask you, the having read the prologue yesterday, do you see yourself as an economic historian? What's your, what's your passion? Because the, the depth of history in your writing is extraordinary. And uh, have you fused those two passions together?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I was at a Philadelphia society meeting a few years ago and some one of the speakers remarked that no one writes economic history anymore. And it's because the historians uh, are all interested in, uh, in, in isms, so you know, racism and sexism and colonialism, all, all, all the current stuff. And the economists are all interested in, in computer models, right? they're all Keynesians, and I think if they have enough data, and enough fancy equations, that, that, that they can describe uh, life that way. And so there's no demand in, in academia whatsoever for, for real economic history that again looks at the past and tries to use the past as, as a model to, to predict the future. I, I, I can't remember which founding father it was of, of the United States, but, but one of them wanted to send every household, have Congress in every household a copy of Thucydides. With the idea that if everyone wrote Thres we <laughs> wouldn't repeat the same mistakes. so that didn't happen, unfortunately. And uh, but but it's but it's a, it's a relevant point. And and so to answer your question, it, it, it is economic history, but but there's very little demand for it these days.
0: Is there a sense that? People want to believe that economics is a hard science. that like you just said, if they get enough data, if they have enough algorithms that they can actually predict the future. But really what we're talking about is the interplay between some of that, but also the randomness of human behaviour.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's a great point. You know, a, a lot of my sources for the ancient material came from books written in the 1890s. In, in the United States, in the 1890s, there was a big debate between the, the bullionists, the, the gold standard people, and the silver standard people, which was a an ver- old version of inflation. idea was there's more silver around, and so if we monetize silver, will we'll prices go up? William J. Bryan was the figure behind this. And so there was a big national debate about this, and lots of books written about the history of credit and, uh, and, and, uh, and money. Uh, from that perspective in the 1990s. And what's interesting, as late as that, uh, uh, economists, people writing economic books, would look back at Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages and, and make analogies to those things and say, hey, we can, we can learn from, from the past and, and apply to the present. But by the time World War I ends in the 1920s, all that is gone. And you have Keynes and Irving Fisher and all the scientists who think that, again, as, as you say, it is, it's a hard science, that history doesn't matter that um, what matters is data and and formulas and if we can just get the right formulas and enough data uh, uh, we, you know it's a, it's a brave new world we can manage the economy in a way that no one could before and, and so so it turned into a hard science from a humanity and, and again one of the things I'm trying to do is return the, the, the humanity to to economics
0: It's interesting preparing to talk the yesterday I kept thinking of that famous quote from George W. Bush about uh, you know getting the smartest guys in the room together right? And I keep thinking there's a sense reading your stuff, I'm like going, you know, I just finished reading Richard Duncan's uh, Dollar Crisis, which, you know, was printed back in 2003. And it's just so prescient. But this, this he, he makes a point that before uh, going off the gold standard, there'd been one major global banking crisis, I think between about 1944 and 1971. And he said, post 1971, at the time of his writing we'd already had 19. so again it seems to be this sense of a complete inability to look at the outcomes of the past so let's talk a little bit about your prologue i read it yesterday for people who haven't read it yet because it hasn't been printed yet but that's uh we all know that's going to happen very soon you wrote brilliantly about the mississippi bubble You wrote about uh, the Sun King Louis the Fourteenth of France uh, and John Law, the White Knight that rode to the saviour of uh, pre-revolutionary France and then blew it up. And some of the lines I just absolutely love. This I wrote these down, John, and I want you to take us through the timeline in a second. But uh, you know, John Law famously says, "I can tell you my secret. It is to make gold out of paper." (laughs) I like that one. And the other one I wanted to mention was the uh, the finance minister Colbert uh, realised what John Law was doing and, I, and I'm using this as an intro to talk of course about how the Federal Reserve has done the same thing but uh, writing about this massive expansion of credit uh, Colbert says here begins the credit game what means will there be henceforth of checking the king in his expenditure I think about that as a 1.9 trillion in stimulus. About about well, consumer.
1: that's right. The next line, the next line was, and the more expenditure is, the more the taxes left to go to to pay the interest yeah. on the expenditure. So, so, so he, you know, he knew it all back then.
0: Well, take us through it. So, if people that aren't—I mean, people have heard about things like the tulip bubble, but reading your stuff, I was like. It was just like being in a time warp. I'm going, this has happened. This has already been done and we're doing it again. So step us through this timeline for people that don't know the Mississippi bubble, that don't know about John Law, that don't know about um, you know, Louis XIV, spin us through some of that timeline.
1: Yeah, so ju- just quickly, fr- France, um, what was by the time Louis XIV died was a bankrupt country. He spent all the money building from <laughs> building and maintaining Versailles. And, and so uh, there were various ideas what to do, uh, the duke saint-simon wanted to declare bankruptcy and simply wipe out the national debt uh, and john law showed up john law was a gambling partner of, of of the region and his idea was well you don't need gold and silver anymore to to run a country you can do it with the credit so he set up a bank uh, and, and the the idea of the bank was that uh, people could deposit their gold and silver at the bank and he would issue out uh, a script and, and the reason this was so important is because the french state had Uh, revalued his currency, devalued his currency hundreds of times in in the the previous few centuries. So nobody knew exactly what a lever meant because it changed all the time. Whereas John Law, because he was not a sovereign, it's it's a key lesson, which is that he he couldn't devalue his notes. He had a contractual obligation to deliver back the gold and silver to people who deposited with him. And so because of that, the market had confidence in his, in his, uh, in, in his script that, that that he wrote against the the gold reserves that, that he kept at the bank, and and I make the point that again, if you go through history as, as the book does later, is that when you look at any great banking system, they all start in this way. Uh, gold uh, coins are difficult because each little coin is different. I mean, different princes uh, uh, print uh, mint different coins, and then each coin itself wears out at different rates, and so. So the, the advantage that a bank does is it, it weighs and assays these, these coins, the way the Bank of Amsterdam bid, uh, uh, but the way John Law did it uh, as well, uh, and then issues out a, a, a currency that's completely uniform, and so it's better. People prefer it. And John Law's uh, money went to a premium against gold, because people prefer to have the paper than, than the gold when it's solidly blacked. And so once the paper's at a premium, you actually lose purchasing power if you don't deposit your gold at the bank and, and get the money. Now this is all strictly in accordance, in my view, with economic law and, and good good governance and good everything. So that first stage uh, worked very well, and the bank was very successful, and he helped revive commerce, because now, unlike the French currency, which was a disaster, there was now a private currency, which was stable and which commerce could rely on. The second thing he did—this um, is where I get a little more controversial—but uh, Uh, in, In my view, and I'm one of the reasons why here, unless you want to, because it's a long, long conversation, but commercial bills, in other words, commercial invoices are basically as good as gold in terms of the banking system. So the banks would do is... After a transaction, it already occurred, And think about um, not consumers buying things at a store, but think about intermediate producers. So all consumer goods begin as commodities, and then the commodity uh, manufacturer sells it to a refiner, and the refiner tells it to a manufacturer, and he manufactures some which it winds up in, in some product, and so you have these supply chains. And the way it works now, and the way it's always worked, is that uh, someone buys an intermediate product, and they say, I'm buying this product today, I'll pay you in 30 days. And now the guy that, that sold that, that intermediate product wants to go buy and resupply himself, but he won't get paid for 30 days. Mm-hmm. So he would take that bill on his customer to a bank and the bank would give him money right away. It's called train financing It's actually the news now because there's a, a, a major UK operation run by Aussie, I think. Yeah, uh, Greensill. Yeah, Lix Greensill. Yeah. Which was doing this, but it wasn't doing this, it, obviously, because it's blowing up. These, these sorts of transactions don't blow up. And so the bank liquefied uh, commercial, again, invoices, not assets, not, not land posted or, or, or inventories, but actual receipts of, of transactions that were occurred. And and again, when you look back at history, you see that basically all banking systems do this too. Uh, and they do this without inflation. They, they create more money, more and more credit balanced by these commercial uh, invoices, which are between thirty and ninety days. So very, very short term, very, very solid. Again, because the transactions already occurred. This is not unexpected about this. And John Law did this as well. And then again, this was very beneficial to the economy. And because of that, the reach of his bank encompassed the whole the whole country. I mean, within a very short period of time, all of France was using John Law's bank. He became incredibly wealthy. And because he was so successful, the French government, the the region, said. Well, there's no point even using the old official currency anymore (laughs) because it's such a disaster. We'll start accepting John Law's currency in the payment of taxes. Now that, in my view, again, is is you look at any bank system uh, in history, and and that's the progression that that happens. Once the government starts taking the money as taxes, and then later it it requires creditors to take as well, in other words, it becomes um, a legal standard, right? What happens then is that... um, if the, if the currency then devalues, in other words, if the bankers then start monetizing things that should not be monetized, as John Law did, and we'll talk about it in a second, um, it doesn't matter because if I have a note uh, the, and I can go to the bank and get my gold back any time, and my note devalues the market. So now it's, got, it's less than the, than the gold is worth. Well, in a free market, I, I'm going to run back to the bank and get my gold back, right? Or a speculator will buy it from me and do that and make, make a profit. And that's how it works. But once the government says, hey, we'll take that thing at face value, well, it's a pain to go get their gold. And that can get full value by handing it to the tax man or handing it to my, to my creditor. And so what you find is that even in gold standard countries in the 19th century, as soon as the government says this is, this is a, a legal tender, Legal standard, right? Uh, uh, people don't return the notes to the banks even when they devalue, and, and that and that aspect is critical because once that had happened, then John Law did something different. This is where it was very 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 innovative. Uh, France owned the Mississippi Territory in the United States, which was uh, undeveloped, shall we say?
0: Yeah, well, I love the part. <laughs> I don't the,
1: what, the, what the PC way to describe uh, it? I these think days you, you is, talked but, uh, about
0: Charles. Was, his, was it Charles Dickens who went to yeah. uh, went to visit it? I, I, I highlighted that yesterday. It's, um he described it as uh, as not exactly prime real estate
1: but that was a hundred years later right. uh it was disease and mosquitoes and and, and natives who weren't particularly friendly yep. uh but but john lost uh, uh what he did was he 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 bought the monopoly for that development from, from the crown. The previous fellow hadn't wanted to try to get rid of it because yeah. it was such a disaster. And, and he created a new company that would develop the Mississippi. Um, and, and he did it and he funded this, this acquisition in, in several ways. Uh, he, he lent money to this thing from his bank. So the bank invested in this company. Yeah. So again, this wasn't creating money to buy gold and silver, to, to exchange for gold and silver or commercial bills. It was for speculative venture. So he created money against a speculative venture. Yeah. And that's how the banking system works today, right? You go to the bank, with with a business plan, or you want to buy a house, or you have an asset that you want to finance, and the bank will give you money against the future, not against a transaction that already happened, but something you're going to do in, in the future. And then he also sold bits of this property to to, to 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 you know individuals the way Cheerio boxes used to sell pieces of the moon to, to, to people right you could send a dollar and get a piece of the moon uh, from Cheerios Well, it was the same same idea because they actually thought it had value on, like on the Cheerio box and they actually
0: and, kidnapped had, had, people didn't they they actually kidnapped people and tried to force them to go out there to, <laughs> it was terrible I was reading it going what like some of them just died and like on the way it was horrible.
1: Yeah, he promised a pocket, but they ran up all the criminals and beggars, and so there's a great place to, to send them. that's how we, that's to how we, them all.
0: That's how we founded Australia.
1: <laughs> but the, the best part is the anecdote by the Duke of and he said that people would pay off the people who were meant that's to right. run up the, the criminals to yeah. run up their, their pesky relatives and business yeah. partners.
0: So if you had, a, you, had, <laughs> you had some neighbors you didn't like, you just said, hey, do you like travel? Do you like adventure?
1: yeah exactly so 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 the the asset itself was was basically worthless this Mississippi thing, but it started trading the shares and and, and it was a there was a market uh, of, of, of bills that would trade but not shares the way we think of it. This was the first one. Uh, the, of, of a share the way the way we think of, of shares, which is the the representation of a, of a of equity ownership in, in, in a in a company. Uh, once that once he started financing this this company with his bank, right, issuing free money the way the Fed does, just printing up money to buy mm-hmm. shares, his bank to push the price up. Uh, th- then he used the value of this company to buy other monopolies from the state. The state would create monopolies in, in trade and, yeah. and, and tobacco growth, that kind of thing, and you could buy it from, from the state, then you would be the guy to collect the taxes or grow the tobacco, whatever it is. And so he started buying all these monopolies up. And so all of a sudden this company had not just the this 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 land in, in the U.S. that was worthless, but it started buying up actually real, real assets, uh, which, which were these monopolies that he would get uh, payments from. And, and so once that happened, of course, everyone wanted to buy this company because uh, because it had real value from, from the state. that was derived from the monopoly of the state. But what, what, what got going was, and again, this is, this is the interesting part you've all been waiting for, is that once the shares started going up in value, you could go to his bank and, uh, and pledge your shares as, as collateral to borrow more money. And then you could borrow more money and buy more shares. And the share price went up, and so you had more collateral value. So then the bank made more shares to buy more, more securities. So you get, you get this positive feedback loop. And, and the value of the shares went from, I forget, the bottom of whatever it was, 50, 50 leaves of over 10,000 over the next couple of years. And, and there was no way to turn off the inflationary engine because, again, the, the higher it went, the, the, more, the, the more credit the bank would, would, would and other people, would, would give you to buy these things. So Noble started flooding in from all of Europe to participate in, in this bubble. This is the first real credit bubble, uh, mm-hmm. a, a modern credit bubble that, that, that occurred. And and I loved reading about the fact that coach seats from other countries, people started speculating those because you had to, if you wanted to go from Germany to get to France, you had to hire a coach and, and get there. And so someone else would snap up all the coach seats first and then sell them to you at elevated prices. So it wasn't just the speculation in the stock that became rampant. It was all the ancillary yeah. uh, uh, of, you know, houses nearby, and I say coaches and other, other things that that got people there. And so I the, think so the bubble d- began to affect the entire economy. Well,
0: you, you told a great story about how there was a there was a hunchback who made a fortune by renting out his back as a as a mobile desk for people to transact <laughs> on. On there's at the Rue Wire, like where all the actual speculation was happening. And we're going, that's innovative.
1: Yeah, no, that that's right. So so it was a massive bubble, and, and everyone thought John Law was a genius. Uh, uh, princes would send their uh, uh, children, sons, to to uh, uh, to Surprise. try to win his daughter's hand in marriage. She was eight years old, but you know he was he was so rich that they didn't care. They had no title. Yeah. Um, and and again, like all modern credit bubbles, the the first part of it was was wonderful because the missing bubble went up, everyone got rich. Uh, and there were no losers. But of course, all that money, credit money going into the, into the economy and people started buying uh, uh, lots of goods, especially luxury goods. So the prices of everything started going crazy and people who were not involved in the speculation uh, started losing. In other words, if you were on a salary job yeah, and then all of a sudden the things you, you bought, you bought to, to live on started going up massively in price, obviously your, your life, uh, your, your standard of living, went down quite a bit. So, so the first start was everyone was happy, but then, of course, people started to grumble as the inflation started kicking in. Uh, and then the other thing happened was, uh, and I think this is particularly interesting for, for where we are, the first time the stock, Mississippi stock, broke, and there was, it was going straight up and it went down a bit, around 5,000 Leave a, a share, John Law announced that the, his bank would buy back any and all shares tendered to it at 5,000. Leave per share. That was he, he. basically everyone had put option. Yes, he guaranteed absolutely. that value, and everyone said, "Well, look, if I can sell it back to the bank for five thousand, I don't want to sell it at all, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because now it's probably worth more than that." So he ran to ten thousand, and then next time it broke. Next time I got to about nine thousand. He did the same thing. Well, it worked last time. Like that's just like the Fed's toolkit. He had this toolkit, right? He mm-hmm. said, I'll, "I'll buy back at nine thousand. Only this time." Uh, a, a billion shares showed up and said, okay, yeah, we'll take that offer, right? Because we don't think the Mississippi was worth 9,000. It was worth something, but not 9,000. Yeah. 9, and so all of a sudden, he had to print up a billion new currency notes to to pay for, for all this. And so he managed to stabilize the value of the asset in terms of his currency, but of course, once he pulled it, printed a billion new notes, the, the currency collapsed in, mm-hmm. in, in value. It, and meanwhile, you know, the, the whole time this was happening, uh, uh, France had banned the use of silver and gold as money because they wanted everyone to use John Law's money because he'd relieve the king of all the debt, the debt of the king of then going take on more debt, obviously, the more easy it became to take on debt, the more they did. Um, and so uh, people were smuggling out uh, uh, not just gold and silver, but artifacts and anything they could get their hands on to try to get, get real values. And then when the end came, because the, 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 he had to print all the all shares up and the, and the, uh, the currency collapsed, so a, a mob showed up. Uh, at his back, demanding the gold and silver, and I love the story. He had, to, he had to flee France, disguised as a woman. I always, I've always imagined you know, Bernanke wearing a wig and sort of, <laughs> you know, skulking off to some some other country. Uh, so but I guess, I guess now it's Powell.
0: What's the tipping point? Like I read it yesterday, the prologue, and what's the tipping point in terms of you know where we are today? Take us back to to John Law again. It was in the equity market really, wasn't it? It was really around the share. Yeah,
1: well, well, let, let me shift gears a little bit and, and because that, that, that's an interesting historical anecdote and I, I run through again the stages that he goes through and, and, and my point is that it applies to all credit bubbles. But in terms of the inflection point, and not just that bubble, but all bubbles, what, what happens in a bubble is you get a supply response. So think about the housing bubble, right? It's, just, it's the same thing as the shares I just described in houses. You go to the bank, you get a 90% mortgage, or they, they offer 100% mortgages now, it's crazy, right? And so you can afford to buy more house, obviously, mm. if, if you're getting uh, you know, 100% credit on it. And that pushes up the price of all the houses in the neighborhood, the next guy shows up and he gets a, a, a more a bigger loan because he got more collateral, right? But what happens is, as the price of houses go up, the people realize, hey, well, let's build new, new houses. Right? I mean, there's no law you can't build a new house. And so you get a supply response, you get more and more houses. Mm. And as you get more and more houses, what happens is the actual uh, uh, income goes down, right? Because the thing of a bubble is that people are frenetically bidding on these assets because the bank is financing it, but any consumer demand hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. People don't really need more houses than they had before. I mean, the population growth isn't that extraordinary, right? You think about all other assets, whether it's ships or airplanes, all those things. I mean, yeah, sure, I mean, you might want might to fly more uh, if, it's, if it's much cheaper, right? But, but there's no indigenous demand growth for those things, in, in, you know, intrinsically. And so as the economy starts building more of these things, right, you get overcapacity, I and mean, your capacity of prices go down. I mean, just that's just that's just economic law, right? And so so at some point, the weight of the overcapacity is enough to p- start pushing prices down despite the financing of the banks. And that's when the whole thing falls apart because the whole system, the whole bubble is predicated on rising prices that bring forth the new credit and once prices are going down, the credit gets destroyed, right? If, if, if the pricing prices go down, the bank says, hey, wait a second, we're not as collateral as we used to be. If it's a margin debt that you get a margin call, you get immediate, uh, 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 a call on, on, on the money. If it's a house, they can't call your house, but they can not give a mortgage to the next guy. And, and that uh, pushes housing prices down. So that, that's where you get the inflection point. To me, it's not, it is confidence. And you really, really read about how confidence breaks and, the thing, and, and then the market's down. There's some of that. But, but there's a real underlying phenomenon, which is, again, overcapacity, which lowers cash flows for these highly indebted projects
0: listening to you, it's it's fascinating. In Australia at the moment, it's probably similar to parts of the US, some parts of the US. We've got a, a huge, I think, bubble in residential property. And it's fascinating because usually, I mean, I, Australia is driven in many ways by immigration. So immigration's collapsed. Uh, you know, productivity, employment is, is down. But yet, House prices are just skyrocketing, and credit issuance is just skyrocketing. The banks can't lend money fast enough. And I'm looking at this, going like listening to you now, in terms of overcapacity. I'm thinking, the 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 fundamentals are wrong. Like it's just there's there's too much credit, and there's less people, and there's less product. So, is
1: is that? Well, that's right. And think about think about the crash, right? In in New York City, for example, 2008 during the crash, you had all these half-built enormous buildings in Brooklyn and other places. They were half-built because you know, there was no real demand for them. I mean, again, if you build it, someone will move into it, but not the prices you need. And even now in New York um, City, where, where I lived for 22 years until about four months ago, yeah. um, every third block has a tower going up. Yeah. And, and they're all... Uh, almost all of them either uh, down midtown they're all huge office buildings which I don't know what the demand for that is everyone's online now and yeah. a lot of that I think will not go back to 100% you might be really the office occasion but I don't think it's gonna be full-time office work for a very long time yeah. and, the, and the rest of it are flats that need to sell for 10 or 20 million dollars a piece to, to pay back right. the, the construction costs and the financing costs and the real estate costs and again I mean who's gonna pay 20 million dollars for a A pretty small apartment, you know, 20 million bucks, you think, all right, I'm going (laughs) to get the nicest thing in the city. It isn't. Uh, And and that that seems extraordinary to me. So again, it's just it's the it's the overbuilding of these things. And and then the realization that the cash flow for these projects are currently zero. uh, And someone has to take the hit on that at some point. And again, what it does is at some point it pushes asset prices down. And then that unravels the whole system because, again, now the banks have to revalue these assets, and and they're all underwater when they do that.
0: So let me ask you, what did John Law get right, and what did John Law get wrong?
1: Well, as I mentioned, what he got right was, and and it's not just me, you know, um, I think Schumpeter called him the first modern economist, and uh, I, I think even Rothbard had a couple of nice things to say about him. Some people think he was a fraud and, and he was the first, you know, the uh, first coming of, of, of Bernanke and Keynes. And, th- and that is partially true. But he also served liquidity very, very, very well. And again, as I mentioned, what he got right was that banks are le- legitimate enterprises and, and they serve to increase liquidity. And the way you do that is by you take, again, relatively illiquid things like gold and, and like commercial invoices and you, and you liquefy them. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with the bank? Is when they take assets, things that are fundamentally illiquid. But what I mean by liquid is, and this is a distinction that that was very uh, uh, apparent or, or discussed 100 years ago, not today. There's a difference between liquidity and shiftability. Right? Liquidity means how fast is something mature. So a 30-year bond takes 30 years to mature. Now I think you know, if you really average it out, the actual. Uh, 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 what, they, what was the term they use? Uh, uh, longevity of his twenty years, but it takes thirty years for the whole thing to get settled, right? You can sell it on a market really easily. It's really shiftable, right? Because these markets exist, but it's not very liquid. Mm. And so, what what a bank does is uh, it creates demand deposits, right, in currency, which are liquid current assets, and it's it's that those are its liabilities, and its assets should reflect that. So its assets should also be. Very, very liquid current things. And again, a commercial bill that has a, a maturity date ninety days in the future is is pretty liquid, not just shiftable. A thirty-year mortgage is not liquid. It might be shiftable, but it's not at all liquid. And and so what? So he, so his mistake was f- confusing shiftability and liquidity. And, and that is in fact lies at the core of the problem of our modern banking system. Is that bankers assume because they can sell something quickly to somebody else that that's liquidity that is not liquidity that, that, that's shiftability hmm. uh, and, and I, that, that to me is a fundamental error of of what what the Fed is up to what the bank system is, is up to I'm
0: listening to you there I'm reminded of a uh, some reading I did on rehypothecation in uh, in repo markets I was like sometimes those things are shifting 30 times before anything you know tangible actually happens with them it's just like this huge shuffling of 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 assets multiple times. Um, so let me ask you, Dan, the big question. Is what we're in now just a case of degree in terms of, you know, people are talking about an everything bubble, uh, bond market bubbles, uh, asset bubbles, equity market bubbles. Compared to what you've written about so well with, you know, pre-revolutionary France and John Law, Is there something specifically different about this? I mean Jim Rogers says that he thinks it'll be the biggest crash in his lifetime simply because the debt levels are so astronomically higher. Is it the same thing but bigger or is it qualitatively different? To to
1: my view as I start my book with Ecclesiastics there's nothing new under the Sun. I mean this is this is there's nothing fundamentally different about this it's a credit bubble and you can trace credit bubbles back to ancient Rome, ancient Greece, back to uh, you can go back to Mesopotamia. There are twenty-eight recorded debt cancellations in Mesopotamia. So this is absolutely nothing new. Mm-hmm. I, I would say the scale is different, um, and, and and what technology and uh, and expansive uh, uh, federal power, sovereign power, has done is allow the bubble to get tremendously large, much larger than it ever has in the past. And so therefore, because. The bubble's the biggest it's been, which means that the dislocations are biggest it's ever been. The crash will be the biggest it's ever been, and and, and crashes. When you look at this uh, historical bubbles in other places, it can get very very ugly, and and uh, and often you find at the end of a credit bubble. You find war, and war is the obvious answer if you're a politician because uh, you have all this overcapacity. Sort of and you have all this unrest and unhappiness, especially among the, among you know, young men who are coming out of uh, 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 education, they can't find jobs, and, and, and so they have no ability to start families. The best thing to do is to round them up, stick them in a ship or tank and send them overseas, which is what Roosevelt does, what the Chinese plan to do. Uh, and, and so you, you often see unrest and violence in these things, and also everyone's lost their money and lost their dreams and their hopes, and so it's a, it's it, it really does challenge civilization with these things. Collapse, um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about uh, the future. And I think what, what, the best thing to do, realizing that, is to educate people. Yeah. I think if people understand the cycle and and where we are, where we're headed, and, and again the why, when it when it blows up, why it blew up, um, it's not because free markets went awry and we need more socialism, uh, and because that that will be the the, what the politicians will say in the economists, will say like, we 've look what free markets have done. we need more government regulation yeah. to prevent the free market from doing these bad things and and, and so the more they take control, the worse the crises get, and the more it justifies more control and so when the next big crash comes, you know the, the risk is that we go full fascism where they take over the entire economy and say, "Look, you know the free market's no good and, and of course it 's the opposite right Of course, the reason the crises are getting are getting worse and worse is because government power is, is growing more and more uh intense and 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 it's it's very it's very concerning that's why
0: peter schiff's video when he went down on wall street when the occupy wall street movement was kicking off i don't know if you saw that video it's got a massive number of views so he's down there talking to people and they're all you know Raging about Wall Street and he's just there going. Hey friends, it ain't Wall Street Like he's there going you're protesting the wrong thing. He said it's the bailouts. It's that sort of stuff
1: Yeah, it is but Wall Street's you place I, I, I want to touch on something else that, that, I, that I think is pretty unique to, to my take on these things And that is as I mentioned to me what John law did was legitimate was was um, finance these trade receiving pools and, and I want to talk about that because it really describes what's happening in 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 our economy in our countries and that is When banks do that, when they only finance receivables, because they can't, because when they try to finance assets, the the money comes back to them in in the law of reflux, and they have to lose their capital for reasons that we can talk about later if you want. Um, What it means is that um, the small company can compete with the big company, because all they care about is the throughput of the marginal uh, uh, basket of goods, right? So if you're a small shoe store, you're buying leather, as long as... The, that, that container of leather goes through your short the same speed as the big guy. You get the same credit terms. There's no credit advantage for being large. Mm. And so you see in the 19th century, lots and lots and lots of little companies, little firms competing with each other. Uh, what what happens when a banking system shifts as it does, as it has in our time, to asset-based, where it lends against your real estate and your factories and, and, and your goods, is that the bigger companies get the best credit terms because they have the most assets. And this is in the data. You look at the Federal Reserve, the larger the loan is, the lower, the, the the interest rate is lower kind of cost of capital, and what that does is it means that the larger firms can underprice their smaller rivals and drive them out of business or acquire them either way. And as a result, what you've seen in the last 40 years in every Western economy is massive, massive concentration of economic power mm. uh, in every sector. There's been huge consolidation, huge concentration. It's all driven by Wall Street money, right? It's all it's all debt-based. And then what happens is that. Once it becomes clear that the bigger the company is, the more credit advantage it has and the lower cost of capital, right? Mm-hmm. The, and the more successful it is, the more the more its equity value goes up. And that's why when you think about uh, ETFs and, and indices, right, they're generally constructed around the size of their they're cap- capitalization weighted, right? Mm-hmm. So the biggest companies are in these indices, which is the best strategy to have. And this is why when you look at active managers in, in and, uh, for uh, money management only 20 percent beat their yeah. their benchmarks yeah. because a benchmark has the best strategy which is invest in the in the biggest companies and so along with the concentrating economic power comes concentrating political power yeah. if you're a politician you're not going to waste your time talking to a thousand small entrepreneurs who are barbershop owners and laundromat people you you, you go to goldman sachs right you you go that you go to walmart you, you go to amazon you go to big companies and look for big checks and so what this credit system has done is to concentrate all this power and create huge wealth disparities mm. uh, because as these firms get bigger and bigger and bigger, they become more interested in efficiency and less interested in innovation. And what efficiency does, right, is try to lower the, the uh, input cost of all their goods. And so what you want are uh, employees like, like the Amazon warehouse, right? What do employees do? They take something out of a box and put it in a different box. Mm. That's all they do. Well, that's not very valuable work. So the wages go down. Right, as opposed to again, innovative firms. You look back in the nineteenth century; everyone's trying to little firms, the innovative in each other, and people make a lot of wages because they need specialized and interesting work to, to do interesting things. So, the, 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 so of expansive thought. But but what I, what I want to convey is that these issues of banking and credit are not just constrained to the econ- to the ec- economy in terms of the market going up and down and. and What's gold going to do, and what are currency going to do? It, it does involve that, but it also involves the very structure and nature of society, uh, and 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 we've reached an end point now where again the the economic power is concentrated in very very few hands, and and, and that is a very it's very un-republican, undemocratic yeah. uh, uh, situation. I
0: think you're absolutely spot on. A couple of thoughts. I know you you know this, but uh, you know in the S and P, I think we're now the top. What, six stocks uh, are worth more than kind of the bottom 400 combined and the other one that's interesting is a few years ago I think it was Isaacson's biography of Rockefeller uh, it's called Titan uh, it's about 900 pages I read that and one of the big things that came through was whatever the the criticisms of the Gilded Age are there was a significant deployment of capital into productive enterprise, and uh, what I'm getting at is that if you look at the market cap of Apple, of Apple, sorry, market cap of Apple, of Apple, you find that they've got massive war chests, but they don't actually employ vast, vast numbers of people. Whereas you know, Standard Oil was employing large numbers of people, and there was a sort of a lot of knock on effects in terms of other industries expanded. So, the the big companies of the Gilded Age seem to employ a lot of people and provide work for significantly large sectors of the economy where I'm, it, it seems that some of the big caps now just don't do that. It's a concentration of of, of wealth. And, and the last point I think you made was really important. The ontological importance of meaningful work that, you know, you talk about someone moving something from a box in an Amazon warehouse. There seems to be something about us as humans that for cultural flourishing, we need meaningful work right we need to actually have something to do with our lives that's that's worth doing
1: no that that, that's exactly right and again this is so important because the the left political left assumes that economics the free market capitalism drives Wealth disparity. So, if you have total free markets, you want it with a few very, very rich people and lots and lots of very, very poor people. And that's what they use to justify progressive taxation, regulation, and and, and all the things, all the destructive things they do. And, and my point is that that's not the case. <laughs> capital, does not do that, it does the opposite. Actually, it 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 gets rid of wealth disparities uh, through competition. And with the whole point of innovation is to get rid of bottlenecks, and 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 you know that's where wealth is, right? i mean, Standard Oil. Uh, well, before that, the whale ship captains controlled energy. You'd go, you'd go sail around the world a couple times, catch some fish, and come back, and 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 you know the blubber, dirty business. And so, energy was very expensive. And what Santa Oil did was make energy much, much cheaper. But then it created that bottleneck, and then and that, and that's how innovation happens, and that's how gains get distributed among the population. And and again, wealth disparities go down. But with the system I described, when you have this asset-based banking system, the opposite happens, and, and wealth winds up at the top. And again, that there's, there's nothing free market about that. These banks exist because they are tied to the state. right? The banking system is specifically chartered to buy uh, government bonds to finance the state. That's what it does, and, and, and that's what the uh, Banking Act in the United States of uh, 1863 was about during the Civil War, which you create a banking system that would finance the war, and they didn't remember the system. It was so wonderful having this system to finance the government spending. Yeah. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So, so again, the, these are non-market entities, uh, and, and that's why that's why they exist. And again, that's why the, the government is so powerful, because they control these banks. So so it's important to understand that when when there's when the such divisiveness between the left and the right. And, and my personal view is that the left does a very good job describing the symptoms of the problems uh but they do a lousy job of the solutions because again they assume that the problem is capitalism and it isn't the problem is the government
0: well i think you recently in another interview you you talked about the four main revolutions i think it was the the revolutionary war there was the uh the, the centralization of kind of federal control in the american civil war um i think we then talk about something like the cultural revolution 1968 and now you you're alluding to a kind of fourth Revolution, which, am I right in saying that it's, it's, it's the uh, the rise of, I guess, a genuine competitive socialism as a panacea again? Is that what you're seeing?
1: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, as, as you say, the American Revolution was based in enlightenment, based in individual liberty. The Civil War, in my view, was, it was based on statism. The whole idea was we were going to have centralized power in Washington. The 60s was a revolution against traditional values, right, it was a revolution that made the state have its own religion, uh, and, and so you had to adhere to that. And then now, the, the, this revolution is really against the individual, right, that's what Marxism is, is what we're, we're all going to be subsumed into this Marxist ideal, and and uh, it, it's, when we were looking, especially in the United States, it's so crazy. <laughs> Things that the left is pushing these days, in terms of the gender things and and the racial things and the and the classist things. I mean, it really is about the government managing every aspect of of your identity, yeah. and and uh, it's 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 frightening. It's frightening, and uh, you know, I, I think Trump had his own personality issues, but at least as bad as this was, when you had a guy like Trump at the top of it, it couldn't do too much too much damage. Yeah. Now with with Biden and the lefties back back enjoying this stuff, I mean, it really is. Really, is nuts. Um, I don't know if you saw the interchange between uh, we probably not between Senator Rand Paul and Biden's yes, new education secretary. Yes, I did. Uh, I did. I've yeah, seen that. Yeah,
0: yeah. She wouldn't answer the question. I mean, just yeah. You
1: know, it's like I, does it make sense to have men run in the ladies' <laughs> track she meet? She wouldn't answer. It. <laughs> and be, I mean, and he, could, and he basically said yes. I mean, if they call themselves ladies, they can they can run with the ladies, mm-hmm. even though they're twice as fast. I mean, it just, it, it's, it's bananas. And yet th- this is this is what the elite. Uh, of this country and, and really all of you, you you know unfortunately you know western civilization have gone down this total path of insanity and uh, and I don't really get too <laughs> deep in the woods here but part of my thesis is that um, when what, what capitalism really is uh, for the individual is you you have money you make money through you through work and, and you have a choice you can consume it right away or you can save it right? And, and, and through most of history, in, in, in good times, good societies, you put your money in the bank, or it doesn't matter, you know, if the bank system exists or not, but the point is you get an increase in it. And and so you can spend more later if you don't spend it today. Uh, and so savings has always been a, a, a virtue, a moral virtue. Uh, and, and the longer you save, the more money you get. And, and because when you do that, you're going to consume your wealth in the future. It makes you very culturally conservative because you want the future to show up more like, like, like the present, mm-hmm. right? Because if, if it's too much uh, strife, you might lose all that investment you made. But when you look at inflationary economies, it's the opposite, right? If you have money today, you're probably going to have less tomorrow because there are no good places to put it. I mean, if you'd like today, you put it in the bank, you know you're losing out. Uh, Bonds, same thing. You could try the market. If you get lucky, you buy Tesla at the right time, that's great. By the wrong time, you get wiped out. So it becomes a, a, a real a real casino. Uh, and so people don't save because they're not paid to save. They consume things right away. And I think that's why you see huge r- raging amounts of drug use and tattoos and all, all, all the things about current consumption. Can come to, and when you read about Weimar Germany, it's the same drugs the drug culture. Uh, 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 it, was, it, was, it was all consumer today because there was no point in saving money for tomorrow. Yeah. So I think there was a very moral aspect to this whole inflationary story story as well. And again, we're seeing that today, especially in the United States where, uh, where, and, and, and Europe, where uh, the elite who are the vanguard of this have no moral base bearings whatsoever. And, and again, looking back at history, in my view, Christianity really collapsed in the 1960s mm. when. The kings just took over money and credit, started printing money, right? And, and the whole idea that you would that you would uh, uh, save and be moral and conservative went out the window because it didn't pay. So we
0: now have uh, we now have the thesis for your your second book.
1: Oh, it's in the first oh, one. Oh, is it? Good. No, I think, you're, <laughs> Chapter I think you're spot on. I think
0: you're absolutely spot on. I, I spend an hour a day. Give a, you know,
1: actually just to interrupt quickly, I've, again, all this is not new. I found a great quotation from the 1890s again from a fellow who was saying, when I, when I look around the world, he was a, a preacher, when I look around the world, I don't see a single country in the gold standard that isn't becoming more civilized, where the working man doesn't get a fair wages for his work, where, uh, where, where Christianity isn't spreading, right? And then I don't see a silver country in the silver standard, which was the in, you know, infl- inflationary mm-hmm. standard, where where the, where there aren't revolutions, where the universities are, are atrophying, where the working man doesn't get paid for for his wages, and and it was very stark back then. And I thought, well, gee, if if the silver center can do that, imagine what a <laughs> back fiat currency can do. And that and that's what we're finding. Uh, out. look,
0: li- reading, listening to you, reading Nathan Lewis's. Uh, the first time I read Nathan Lewis, I was like, he made that point about the moral relationship of you know low taxes and stable money to it to a moral society. But, you know, listening to you, I spend about an hour a day debriefing my kids every day. They're in good schools, uh, but oh, seriously, we sit around the table every night and we're just debriefing, you know, what they were told today and you've got to be across everything that they're, you know, that, you know, recently they, um, we, we, this email comes through, they're going to do, they're going to uh, unpack the slam poetry that was done at uh, Biden's installation. And uh, and I'm just going, no, 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 anyway. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting is when you're talking about that moral aspect of saving, my son, who's 11, he had a bunch of cash from doing all these jobs and he wanted to buy stuff. And I said to him, I had a silver, well, one ounce silver coin. I said, man, I'll give you this. I bought him a safe, a little safe. I said, I'm going to give you this silver coin. I said, you give me, you know, it was about 30, 40 Australian dollars. I'm going to give you this coin and now he's like he's got this coin and he's he's on the he's, he's on the internet checking out the silver prices pretty regularly. So that's a bit of fun, but I listen, realize. you and I both push for time today. So I'm really going to hope we can I'm going to ask if we can, you know, do a second installment on this, but I wanted to ask you something really important. Let's talk about gold. Let's talk about uh, so I just uh, did the crypto economics program at Oxford and the volatility of crypto is problematic i'm convinced that central banks are not going to let anything win other than their own central ba- central bank digital currencies i i'm tr- is it true is it fair to say do you think that gold will reestablish itself in some kind of post-crisis as a monetary standard once again
1: yeah i mean i'm 100 the an- sure the answer is yes and, and, I'll, and i'll tell you why i'm so confident and, and that is that Um, The economy moves for gold for specific reasons, and Carl Carl Menger, the the, the founder of the Austrian School of Economics, talked about this, and that's liquidity. The market needs liquidity to make barter more efficient, and and gold has the attributes that that allow that to happen. Um, And and one of the lessons of history is political power is powerful, and you can diverge from economic laws and, and, and have different monies. But they always go away, right? I mean, empires don't last forever, and and, and to think that does, I think, is is, is is a fallacy, and and you have to, I think, be a little more subtle again in how you understand these things. One of the points I often make is that, um, is that again, I, I mean, I think banks are totally legitimate uh, 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 institutions. When you look at the Federal Reserve as a bank, forget about the sovereign aspect of it. It has a, it has assets, it has liabilities, it has a balance sheet, and. Um, in 19, oh, I want to say 42. The Fed was backed by 84% gold. So you, you hold a dollar in your wallet, one dollar, 84% of that was gold, and the rest was some government bonds. A very solvent country, so that that was fine, and and a couple other things. By the 1968, at the top of that bubble, the gold component of the dollar, and there was a percentage that gold was the assets of the Federal Reserve, had declined to about 12%. So so now your dollar was only 12% gold. The rest was government paper of of. of you know, varying quality. In my view, what happened from 68 to 1980, right? It wasn't that the government printed so much money. They did, but well, that wasn't the real story. The real story was the gold went from uh, uh, 30, $35 to 875, right? At 650, when gold hit 600, $650 an ounce in 1980, the Fed Reserve's balance sheet was 100% backed by gold. Right. the bagel they hold their balance sheet times 650 ounces was hundred percent of their liabilities so your dollar and your wallet again was a hundred percent back based. so in my view the market had put us back in a gold standard now no one thinks of it that way today or then politicians don't economists don't because they don't understand gold they don't care but in my view the the, the economy did it the free market did it all right and then What's happened is that the mod, the, the Keynesians who call themselves monetarists now, but they're basically the same people, uh, got got in charge, and so all the credit was wrung out of the system, and they started doing the same thing, only more so, buying bonds, and they're much more sophisticated now, and the banks are more powerful, so they put it, they let it go incredibly long. There was, there was a great uh, quote from Hayek in the late '70s who said that that he never imagined he could go so far, right? But he knew it would it would it would blow up in the end. Of course, he was right. He sent me a day. It's, it's unimaginable that they've been able to you know, run this thing for forty. Mm. 40odd uh, years but but they've done it and and gold is now represents around six percent of the fed's balance oh, sheet yeah. I mean six percent so in my view is half the price it was in 1968 at35 dollars an ounce I mean that's how cheap it is and, and what what the market will do the market is always more powerful than the government in the end yeah, and we know this because think about the number of price controls there's a great book called 5000 years of price controls I mean, this is nothing new, uh, but they they, they never work because the market's more powerful. And at some point, the market will force gold back into the system because it's free market money. And it could be different ways. It could be that gold goes to price again that rebalances the Fed's balance sheet, and that will require gold prices up at the $10,000-$15,000 yeah. an ounce range. And that's assuming that the balance sheet doesn't change, which is a bad assumption. Mm-hmm. I think it'll get bigger, right? It could be a total abandonment of the dollar and, and, these, and these currencies, which, again, are, are pretty new. I mean, you know, the 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 pound sterling left the gold standard for 20 years in, in, in the nineteenth century after the Napoleonic Wars, right? I mean, so this, this is not terribly impressive, I maybe mean, four years is a long time, but in the in the span of world history, the Chinese left Gold Standard a few times. Actually, they were more of a copper center, but they always went back to it because they had to, because the market forced them to. So the, the, it's not the politicians will get become wise and economists will reform themselves and actually be economists as opposed to politicians. Um, it, it's that the market eventually will, will force it on... The governments and the economies whether they want it or not so so the answer is yes i mean now the timing that's a different question but the outcome is certain because again empires don't last forever
0: and your take on the crypto space like theres you know if you're ever feeling like you need to be energized you just have to listen to peter schiff talk for a couple of minutes on on bitcoin <laughs> and uh, you just like i think we could call it an unambiguous position but uh look it's self referential it's uh it's volatile it's How it's a store of value, I don't see. What's your take on uh, central bank digital currencies? I'm convinced that central banks are not going to let private cryptocurrencies survive or flourish. And what's your take on, what kind of play can you see happening from central bank's in terms of trying to avoid gold standards, avoid a day of reckoning by issuing digital currency.
1: Yeah, well, so I'm, I wrote I a paper on Bitcoin, which which you, I'm happy yep. to send you a couple years ago, three years ago. Where, where I discussed again from a from a Hungarian perspective the problems with, with Bitcoin and all the currencies, which again is volatility. And you know, what what the reason gold is so stable? The reason one of the reasons why it works so well as money is because if gold gets too scarce, the price of gold goes up. And all the marginal mines open up, and people sell their jewelry, mm-hmm. melt down to gold, so the monetary supply increases, and, and vice versa. So it's actually tied to commodity prices through mining, and every consumer product begins as a commodity, and so, and so in gold standard countries, what you see is in, 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 not today, but looking back at history, is that because commodities are stabilizing gold, right? All, the whole price chain is is also stable in gold as well. And then consumer mm-hmm. price take on gold. So it's, it creates stability. Now, just a quick, quick aside, uh, what happens in a fiat currency uh, like, like we have is that gold and commodities react very quickly to monetary uh, uh, developments, right, so they become volatile, they seem volatile in the, in the fiat currency. but when you have all these intermediate suppliers, these supply chains, those are long-term contracts or, or semi-long-term contracts. And so they don't adjust for prices every day. And so what, what happens is it looks as though gold is volatile compared to consumer prices because consumer prices are sticky because of all those intermediate supply chains with lots of contracts. So, but in a gold standard, uh, uh, consumer prices and all prices become very, very stable is against the gold, again, because of gold's connection to commodity price through mining. There's absolutely no equivalent to Bitcoin, right? People think, I think erroneously, that Bitcoin responds to the price of energy. It doesn't, right? Remember, the, the Bitcoin algorithm is uh, there is a winner of that tournament every 10 yeah. minutes. If there are lots of competitors, the the, the the form is very complex, and it takes a little of energy to solve it. If there are very few competitors, uh, uh, then it takes a little bit of energy to solve it. But it's still... It increases every 10 minutes at that mm-hmm. asymptotic rate, so it has no tie to commodities or life or anything else. There's no reason why it would ever become stable. The, the only theory that is presented is that the world simply needs X amount of base money because Bitcoin's perfect; it will fulfill that need, and that need is stable, and Bitcoin will fill it 100%. Therefore, it become stable for that reason. And I, I, it's it's, it's so absurd, I'm not yeah. going to If you want me to know why that's wrong, we can read the paper, but that is that is wrong. So I, I think Bitcoin is not going to work. Uh, it's a great speculation. One of the reasons it is, because I mentioned earlier, bubbles collapse when, when you get a supply response, and you can't get a supply response at Bitcoin now. You can have other cryptocurrencies, and so maybe you are, kind of, I don't know. But uh, Bitcoin proper, you can't, and so you can put it up to any uh, amount. And the only thing that will kill it is when Enough people have borrowed enough money to buy it. People, right, that mortgage their house yeah. or they max their max credit cards out to buy Bitcoin. Well, now they have the interest payments to pay to maintain that investment. So at some point, that will that will tumble that that pyramid. In in my view, I have lots of friends who disagree with me, but that's my my take on it. In terms of your question about the central bank cryptocurrencies, I think that is very likely to happen, and the reason is because before any of these innovations happen, you see lots of academic papers written about them. And there have been more and more academic papers written about this, and that's how you know, that's, that's a signal that they're moving this yeah. direction, right? And and what's in it for them is that, um, a couple of things. Uh, uh, if they move to a cryptocurrency, well, first of all, you know, like Rogoff says, all right, well, only criminals use cash, right? If you're, if you're using cash, you must be a criminal or a terrorist uh, because you're outside the the, the the legal system, right? So. In a, in a cryptocurrency world, they, they could track every single transaction. Now think about that. This is actually what Vladimir Lenin wanted to do. He, he said, he wrote that that a big bank was the skeleton of a socialist economy because that's how you track all the different transactions happening. So that's, that's number one. I mean, basically they're, they're all Marxists. They don't call themselves that, but but that's what mm-hmm. they are in essence. And so they want to track all that stuff. And the other thing is the, the way the FedCoin uh, proposal is being, you guess, a proposal, but papers you read is that, it will be implemented by the banks, okay? So think about this, you have your ATM machine. If you to your bank, it's, it's free. They're getting money other ways. If you got someone else, you can pay 2 or 3%, right? I mean, 2 or $3 charge. Well, imagine if every single transaction with FedCoin, the banks took a little tiny yeah. piece of it, right? I mean, how, how wonderful for them. And so, and so the banks are pouring money into crypto research, not because they're big libertarian Bitcoin fans, it's because, they, they view the threat of being disaggregated yeah. by free market money. They don't want that. What they want to do is develop a program that the central bank will sign on to where they become an integral part of the payment system so they can scalp a tiny bit of, of money for every transaction in the economy. So it, it's really, really scary stuff. I mean, it's like you, know, you, you wonder uh, when you read about Louis XIV and again, John Law's situation where you have people running around. Trying to find uh, and confiscate gold and silver in in, in transaction because right. it was made illegal. You know they didn't have they had informers. In yeah. Apparently you know you didn't you had to watch out your That's servants because right. they would turn you in and because they get some reward if they did, right? But you think about today the opportunities for a totalitarian yeah. country that they have like in China, where they uh, have cameras everywhere, where they can monitor your existence on the computers, where they can what's proposing to is is uh, is track every single transaction you make it's it's terrifying one of the things that
0: came through at oxford was um that in a in in a fully cryptocurrency based ecosystem every dollar is programmable like you can literally yeah so and the way to think about that is in a social credit chinese style system if you're subversive in any way it's very easy for your dollars to be turned off for your dollars to only work well (laughs) for your dollars to only work within 50 miles of your home So you can't get gas in another city or you can't stay in a hotel here. Like all these different permutations. Now, you and I have both got to go. So what I am going to do, I'm desperate to get you back because we have so much more to cover. But to wrap up on this first installment, because i got a feeling you and I could talk for hours. I'm absolutely loving this. Let me ask you, why should people read Golden Tears, this book that is almost finished? Why should people read it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, the Scherzer quote, which I haven't memorized, I think you have, but the, the deeper you look back in history, the more you can look look forward. And, the, and that was really the point of it. Again, I, I wrote this partial for myself to understand the gold market, the market I'm in, and, and credit bubbles, which is, I mean, gold's not interesting. Gold just sits there, right? It's, it's how gold reacts and reveals the credit bubble. That, that's interesting. So you have to understand that. And the realization that, again, that, that none of this is new. This has all happened. Uh, uh, over and over again and one of the things I really sp- spent a lot of time doing was finding quotations in these historical events like some of the ones you highlighted which you read them from from uh, tens or hundreds or sometimes thousands of years ago and, and, and you instantly recognize them and you say oh, that, th- that describes perfectly where I am right now and, and and that's that's the magic of it and I think that reading these accounts and reading all these quotations and reading about people living through these the, these situations can again uh, illustrate the pattern and help you, the, the reader, uh, uh, get through the pattern unscathed yourself.
0: I've got another favourite saying that uh, it's okay to make mistakes as long as they're new ones. So I look at our financial system. I'm, I'm reading your your great work here. I'm there going we're not making new mistakes here we're making the same ones so dan listen i want to thank you so much for your time i, I sorry we both got to wrap this one up but there's so much more we are going to cover um i'm going to get you back on the show as soon as you're available but uh listen thanks for this first installment i'm going to send people in uh the right direction to the capital and to where they can find out more about the book but thanks so much for joining us today thanks for having me Hey everybody, Jonathan with you once again. Hey, did you enjoy that? How good is Dan Oliver? And uh, such a great discussion. And did you get the sense there's so much left to discuss? One of the great things about doing this show is that uh, we get our best guests back very quickly. So I look forward to bringing Dan back on the show very soon because I felt like we scratched the surface. But uh, look, I just think it's fascinating that Dan has that deep conviction that gold is going to re-establish itself as it always has throughout the long journey of classical economics. So uh, please make sure you go and check out Myrmican Capital. Uh, So that's M-Y-R-M, M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N. Go check out Myrmican Capital. Uh, Dan's newsletter, his writing is available there. It's fantastic. And that's uh, myrmican.com. So M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N.com. And, of course, his book, goldentears.org. org. I want you to go check that out. Uh, really want to support what Dan's doing. I think uh, many of you would agree that education is such a crucial thing for so many people at the moment. Look, that's it for us for this week. Please make sure you've subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening to this hit that subscribe button on apple podcast leave a review would be fantastic and uh come across if you're hearing this somewhere else come across to supplysidepartners.com, supplysidepartners.com and make sure you've got your name in there for the regular uh, installments we send out emails when new episodes pop so please make sure you've done that that's it for now uh, from me thanks again to dan for making time for us i got so much out of it myself we listened to this again a few times but that's it for this week. My name's Jonathan Doyle. This has been the Supply Side Podcast, and we're going to have another episode for you very soon.